For I am his and he is mine. Here in the blood of Christ I stand. We've sung some wonderful truths this morning, haven't we? Let's pray that God will speak to us as we open his word. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Please, enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, please do uh, keep your Bible open there at Revelation chapter 7. We'll be spending our time there this morning. Revelation is a book that uh, raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What does 666 mean? Who is the Antichrist? When are these things going to happen? Is it going to really involve the city of Jerusalem? And how much of this picture language actually connects with history as we experience it? Now, another unspoken question is often this. Why are you preaching from it? <laughs> and after all, this is a very unfamiliar, strange type of writing to most of us. And here at King's Church, we've been in this book since September. A good three months we've spent in Revelation. And today we're going to pause uh, for now uh, as we go into the Advent season. And the main reason for studying Revelation is that it captures our imagination. It captures and purifies our imagination. It gives us a vision, a vision of reality. If you like, we get a kind of God's eye view of what is really going on in the world, in human history and in our own lives. This visionary quality of this book is something very, very precious. It's giving us a fresh pair of spectacles, a, a better vision, a way of looking at the world. It's actually purifying our imagination. But as well as raising a lot of questions, the book also asks a few. And one of the most important questions was asked at the end of last week's chapter. If you look there at chapter 6, verse 17. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand Revelation uses questions like this as part of its teaching method. Remember back in chapter 5, we saw a vision of the heavenly throne room. It's like we've caught a glimpse into the presence of the living God, into the control center of the universe, into the cockpit. And we see that in God's right hand, which is the place of power and authority, the right hand is a scroll written, full of writing, inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And the writer of this book, John, wept and wept bitterly. Why? Because this scroll contains God's plans and purposes for human history and nobody is found worthy to open it and look inside it. That is, nobody can put into action God's plans and purposes for the world. And that being the case, history would be stuck in an endless, hopeless churn of conflict, injustice, sickness, death and decay. No wonder he wept. God's kingdom would never come if no human being could have opened the scroll. Because God has committed himself to work through humanity. And he doesn't just change the rules. But one was found worthy. So the writer was told, cry no more. This one is described as the Lion of Judah. That's the Jewish Messiah. And it said that he has triumphed. But when John turned and looked, he saw not a lion, but a lamb bearing the marks of slaughter. This lamb... Somehow, he stands in the center of God's throne. And he possesses divine power and wisdom. 
Yet simultaneously, he's a real flesh and blood person, even one bearing the scars of a violent death. And he alone is worthy. Now, you know, there's only one candidate for this character, and his name is Jesus. Bearing the marks of slaughter, Jesus Christ is still in solidarity with the suffering of humanity. And precisely because he's in solidarity, he has got to deal with the sources of evil that fill our world. Do you see that? This teaching about God's judgment is actually a good thing and something that we ought to praise God for appropriately. God will sort out all the wickedness and injustice. And so in chapter 6, the Lamb took the scroll from the right hand of God and began to open its seals. And we see permission given to these four horsemen to unleash conquest and war and famine and death. And in the midst of all of that was then the fifth seal. The voices of those Christians who've been killed for their faith interrupted the worship of heaven and they cried out, how long, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the world and avenge our blood? And they were told to wait for a little while longer. And then the sixth seal looked like the end of the world. There was a huge earthquake. The sun turned black. The moon turned blood red. Stars fell from the sky. The heavens were rolled back. And there's an extraordinary image of judgment as exposure. All the great and the good, all the powerful and rich, and everybody else hides in caves and in rocks. And they call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and cover us up. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can withstand it? There's the question again. Who can stand in the face of God in all his holy anger at the wickedness of this world? Which one of us would stand? And we ended last week with a rather sobering thought. See these two big screens? If, if somebody had permission to make a, a, a film of your life, of your secret private life, and every uh, unkind word, every impure motive, every lustful thought, every unjust action, every bit of gossip, slander, the pride that, that so often fills us, and it was all put on these screens, then who could stand? In fact, who would even stay to the end of the service? We would be so exposed. Now, chapter 7 answers the question, who can stand? And the answer is, these can. Verse 9. I looked and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These ones can stand. Now, this is an amazing picture for us. We're full of questions again. How can these ones stand, and who are they? And this chapter is going to give us the answers. So I want to look at it with you under three headings. And they all begin with R. The chapter is going to give us reassurance. It's going to give us news of God's rescue. And it will give us a, a view of reality. Reassurance, rescue, reality. Firstly, reassurance. Verse 1, after this I saw... Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And this is an image of these angels. It's all uh, imagery of angels holding back judgment. It's like there's a terrible uh, tornado, hurricane that's going to be unleashed and, and sweep through, just harming the earth and the sea and harming the trees. And they're just holding it back, waiting. And the, the image of four 
the, the number of four in the Bible often refers to the whole world, the four corners of the earth. So these, this is a, a picture of a, a global judgment that's coming. Human affairs are going to be shaken uh, by God's judgments taking hold. And while that's about to happen, God's people need to be reassured that they will come through it safely. And that reassurance is what we are given here. That this chapter is telling us it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, no matter what you might feel now. Verses 3 and 4, we read of a seal. Again, this is a different kind of seal. Have a look at what it says. Verse 3, uh, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Then I heard the number of those were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, a seal in the ancient world could be a bit like getting an envelope and, and marking it, do not open, uh, very important, official communication, only to be opened by the, the addressee, that sort of thing. But a seal could also mean something that was sealed as a special possession, something that's reserved for special treatment. And here this is an image that God's people are going to be sealed on their forehead, a personal touch to say that you are mine. God's saying, you're, you're one of mine. I won't forget. I won't overlook you. Every single one is identified by this sealing. What is it saying? A nightmare is coming in the world, but God's people will be safe and secure. So who's in God's people? In verse 4, he hears a number, 144,000 people from all the tribes of Israel. And verses 5 to 8 list them. And well done, Miriam, for reading all through that. I don't expect these are your favorite verses in the Bible, are they? From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, etc. I don't expect you've got these verses on a fridge magnet or embroidered on a lovely cloth in a frame. But let me share how excited I am about these verses. My preaching professor when I was at college said, always bear in mind that by Sunday morning, nobody else is as excited about the Jebusites as you are. But I'm excited about this list. It's a census. A li you know, when you count how many people there are, we had a census recently in this country, didn't we? Now, there are only two situations in the Bible where this kind of census is taken. The first one is for tax purposes, aren't they always? And the second is for war. Now, it seems unlikely that we're talking about taxation here, but the context has a great deal about war and conflict and standing firm and fighting. And notice that the first name on the list is Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And this already is strange, because the first one, the firstborn of the 12 tribes of Israel was Reuben. I know a few people around here who've named their firstborn Reuben in, in honor of that. So why is Judah here? How come he's jumped the queue? Well, the answer lies in the identity of the king, the Messiah. He's going to be a descendant of the tribe of Judah. That was a great promise given to David, 2 Samuel 7. And, and so this Messiah, remember, is the Lion of Judah. He's a son in David's line. All that stuff about Jesus' genealogy that we're going to read at Christmas, or the first few verses of Romans that insist Jesus is a descendant of David on his human side, all of that makes sense given the history. Jesus had to be from the tribe of Judah. Judah comes first. So this is the tribes of Israel being redefined as Jesus' people. Now, there's another strange detail in this list. It's that the tribe of Manasseh is included. 
verse 6. And it's possible that some Bible nerds among you will remember that Manasseh was not one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's not one of the 12 tribes anywhere else. He's the son of Joseph. So not only that has happened, but another of the 12 tribes has dropped out. Anyone here called Dan? Dan is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Dan doesn't make it into this list. Sorry, Dan's. So what's going on here? Has our writer, John, embarrassingly forgotten his Old Testament history in a lapsed moment? Of course not. This is all deliberate. Now, the scholars differ on what it means, but it seems to be a subtle suggestion that one of the original 12 has been removed from the list and another has taken his place. And that would chime, wouldn't it, with the 12 apostles. Jesus chose 12 and one of them had to be removed, Judas Iscariot, the traitor. He was disqualified and his name was taken, place was taken by another, Matthias. Once again, this is the ancient people of God, the tribes of Israel, now redefined as Jesus' people, headed by the apostles. Okay, but why are there 144,000 of them? Some people have got into trouble with taking this literally. Famously, the Jehovah's Witnesses decided that this was the limit on the number of God's people. But they had to redefine it when the number of Jehovah's Witnesses went over 144,000. Actually, the, the book of Revelation itself gives us a tip-off. Further on in chapter 14, this group of 144,000 appears to be made up completely of male Jewish virgins, which seems to be an unlikely demographic, doesn't it, for the whole people of God. Now remember that a Revelation is this certain kind of writing. It's called apocalyptic. Numbers in it aren't just about maths. They're about symbolic value. And the number in the Bible of God's people is 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles chosen by Jesus. So the number of God's people in the old covenant and in the new covenant is 12 and 12. So if you multiply 12 and 12, you have 144. Now what number do you use if you want to express something enormous, a superlative number. You'd probably say a billion or a trillion or a gazillion, wouldn't you? What they said was a thousand. <laughs> a thousand is a really, really big number. So if you get 12 times 12 times a thousand, you have the number of the complete people of God, 144,000. But notice what happens next. It's a difference here between what John hears as he's being told about this number and what he then sees in verse 9. Have a look again at verse 9. After this, I looked. And what did he see? Did he see 144,000? He saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. Now, we've seen this pattern before in the book of Revelation. We remember back in chapter 5 when John was told, he heard, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. But when he looked and saw, he saw a lamb. The lamb reinterprets what he's heard. Here we have, he hears 144,000. He sees, unpacking it, a, a, a crowd that's so big no human being could ever number it. Now who's in this crowd? People from every nation. This is the word we get ethnic from, ethnos. It means a body of people united by a culture, common traditions, kinship. People from every tribe. Tribes are a subgroup of a nation that are linked with a distinctive bloodline. It's people from every people. 
That's a body of humans tied to a specific territory with common cultural bonds. Maybe we would say a country. It's people from every language. It's every linguistic group. And by the way, every linguistic group in the world does not yet have the Bible. It's an unfinished task. There are thousands of unreached people groups left. But this is the people of God. It's giving us a vision. You just pause for a moment and get a vision of this. People from every nation, tribe, people group, and language. And so many you can't count them. That's who's being saved. And, you know, we're very fortunate because we live in a time in world history where we are actually seeing this. Lindsey Brown, writer, described how in 1910 there was a global conference in Edinburgh and it had mem- uh, representatives on the Christian faith who were talking about world mission. And 95% of the participants came from the Western world, 5% from the rest of the world. A similar congress was held 100 years later in, in 2010 in Cape Town. 5,000 Bible-believing leaders from across the world came together. Only 35% were from the Western world. Two-thirds from the majority world. That's just an indication of how things have changed. During the last 100 years, the Bible-believing church has exploded all around the world. No longer can anybody say that Christianity is just a Western religion. The majority of Christians today are outside Europe and North America. The six countries with the largest number of Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are no longer in Europe. They are China, India, Nigeria, Brazil, the United States, and Korea. There's been a huge sea change in just one century. And bear in mind that the the job isn't done yet, and many people still haven't heard about Jesus. Now John just caught a glimpse of it. He sees this throng. These people are victorious. They alone can stand in the day of God's anger. They wear white robes like priests. They wave palm branches, signaling victory. And they just burst out in praise. They say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a great reassurance, friends. It's here to reassure us. Whatever happens, God will save his people. They are before the throne, safe forever. But how? The answer is they've been rescued. My second point, rescue. Look with me again at verse 9 to 11. Let's look at uh, verse 10. They cried out again, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation means rescue, being saved, being rescued from peril. And and all these angels are standing around and and, and the elders and the fallen creatures are all falling and everybody's singing and praising God. Praise and glory. They're just blown away by it. And then one of the elders, that's one of the church leaders, comes and he asks a question in verse 13. These ones in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Now, John is standing there. He's been asked the question. I wonder what you would have said. But John, like every good student, knows when it's time to bounce the question back at the teacher. You see how he replied? Sir, you know. And any school children here who who, uh, haven't gone out to youth work, this is a good tip for you to take into the week ahead. If anybody asks you a question at school, you're not sure of the answer, just say, sir, you know. (laughs) And of course, the elder did know, and he's glad to provide an explanation. And he says, verse 14, 
These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And you say, well, that hasn't made it a lot clearer. (laughs) That's what teachers do, isn't it? But it can be opened up simply. Now, suffering is part of God's kingdom. We already learned that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. The writer himself identifies himself, who's a brother and companion, in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So with Jesus, you get, you get the kingdom, but you also get suffering. And you get patient endurance to live through the suffering. And the churches that he's written to, seven churches, have all experienced various degrees of suffering. Some of them have been outright persecuted. They've been discriminated against. They've lost their status. Some would have lost job opportunities. Some have lost their family. Some have been persecuted unto death. (coughs) Tribulation is a word meaning a state of great trouble and suffering. And this letter is actually written to prepare those little Christian communities in, the, in Asia Minor, to get ready for a nightmare which is going to come. And it did come. And he's saying here, you can get through it. And we're not facing that kind of tribulation, are we? But, you know, tribulation comes in many forms. And in a room of this size, there will be many people who are suffering. And crying out, Lord, how long is this going to go on for? I'm not sure I can live. Despairing even of life itself. Such grief, such unresolved anguish, such feelings of betrayal, such hurt. How long, O Lord? You you pray that prayer of the Bible. You can come through it. You will come through it. If you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that's the only firm foundation for life and death. That's the only guarantee for our future. That's what he's talking about when he says they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made. I mean, how could you wash robes in blood and make them white? It doesn't make sense. It's imagery again that somehow the blood of this person makes us clean. Whiter than snow. Not a spot or blemish between you and God. Everything is wiped clean. Your relationship with God, if you're a Christian believer here, is like a blue sky with not a single cloud in it. Because you've been washed. This foundation for life and death is referring to the cross of Jesus. His work on the cross. Where he gave his life consciously, deliberately, The strong one laid down his life for us, the weak. His death was not an accident or a tragic example. It was a substitution. He stood in my place. He stood in your place. And he paid our ransom. He paid our debt to set us free. Amen. So this vivid image of being under the blood, it's quite gory, isn't it? It's quite graphic. But it expresses this fact Somebody gave their lifeblood for me. He bled to death. He gave his life. He, he expired. He died so that he could give life to you. 
and his life will never end. It's resurrection life that he gives us. So let me ask you today, I don't know what's going on in your heart. What are you trusting for your life? Who do you ultimately trust? Here's how one uh, definition of the Christian faith put it. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what the rescue means. And here is that comfort, and it's in God's reality. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What assurance that is. A beautiful, beautiful weaving together of images and verses and promises all through the Old Testament of what will happen when God returns and sets things to right. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the imagery of people in a, in a sun-parched, dry land being sheltered like the Israelites were, able to shelter with God in the tent of his presence. And here this amazing image that the lamb is the shepherd. Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. Never again to hunger or thirst and be burned. Living water, refreshment forever. Tears wiped away. This is a, a picture of the world we all want. But it does give us a problem, doesn't it? What about now? What about the suffering church all around the world? We thought last week about the thousands of Christians being killed for their faith every year. What about the suffering that you're going through, whatever that may be? There seems to be some kind of tension here. On the one hand, we've got this amazing promise. On the other hand, we've got, you've got to come through the great tribulation. Now, the key to this actually is given back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 9. We won't, we won't have time to read it. But in Ezekiel, the prophet sees a vision of God's judgment coming from Babylon, from the east, and the Babylonians coming, and they're going to sweep through the country as they did. They were a superpower of their day, and they could destroy all comers, and they went through and destroyed 
the Israelite people and they destroyed the temple. But in the vision that Ezekiel has, people are in the temple and they get sealed with a mark on their forehead. Sound familiar? And God actually says, these ones who were sealed, will be, they're the righteous ones, they'll be safe. And when the, the destroyers come, they come to the temple and these ones are safe. Now, the strange thing about that is, number one, a lot of righteous people did get killed by the Babylonians. And number two, they didn't start at the temple, they started at the edge of the city. And number three, the ones who got rescued and taken away were quite a mixed bag, to be honest. They weren't all the righteous ones. So it's as if what Ezekiel's seeing and what actually happened seem to be out of joint. And what that's telling us is a clue, actually, to understand Revelation, which is this. When God gives you his perspective on reality, it will be different from what you and I can see. But God's vision is more real than our perspective. I know this is a bit mind-blowing, so I'm just going to say it again. God's vision is more real, more really real, than our perspective on life and the world. You might say God's vision is more real than history. Because God here makes this extraordinary set of promises to his people that he's going to protect them, keep them. They will be ultimately safe and secure and, and blessed. And yet they're going to go through this terrible tribulation. How does it work? It works like this. We follow a lamb who is a lion who is a slaughtered lamb and we go wherever he goes. And so part of following Jesus Christ is to be willing to walk with him through the suffering that he will allow you to endure, knowing that all things will work together for your good. And God will bring you through it holier, happier, and better than you would have otherwise. You will be dressed in a white robe and absolutely pure. So we live with this kind of tension. That we live in this present time, which is a time of suffering and darkness. Yearning for hope, praying for the future. And the Lord says, wait a little while more. But here's a vision to see things differently. Here's what can happen to you if you get this perspective. I want to tell you a little story as I close. It can, how this perspective can strengthen you for every storm. Horatio Spafford was a prominent American lawyer and a committed Christian. The family decided to take a holiday in Europe. This was in the late latter years of the 19th century. And they were a very affluent family. So Horatio sent his wife, Anna, and four their four daughters on ahead in a boat while he stayed back to finish business to join them later. November the 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives. All four of Spafford's daughters were drowned. Anna Spafford survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband with these words, saved alone. Spafford then sailed to England, going over the location of his daughter's deaths. And he wrote these words on the journey. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ 
has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Now, why was he able to write those words and find such comfort going over the watery grave of his daughters? And here's the answer, and it's in the theology of his third verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And my sin, all my rebellion, all my failure, all my wickedness has been taken away and nailed to his cross. And not only mine and yours, but sin with all its consequences in the world and in the universe is going to be wiped out. There's a new day coming. There's a better tomorrow. There's a whole world to come. The home of righteousness. There's a new creation. Who can stand? We can. Let's pray. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Lord, we praise you for these wonderful things that you've shown us in your word. And we just ask for the faith to trust you, to hold your hand, whatever our circumstances. Even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death or feel like it, that you would be our comfort and strength. Amen. Amen. I think we're going to sing. We are. A song appropriately about the lion and the lamb. Thank you. We'll stand when the musicians begin to play.